Hello and welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex, and we are back for another amazing episode. This week, I'm talking to director Kristen Lovell, Zachary Drucker, and Carrie Smith, who is one of the documentary subjects in the film we're going to be talking about today, The Stroll. Now, what I like about The Stroll is that it captures a point in time in New York history that saw the trans community, specifically black trans women, sort of create this community of protection, of love and safety amongst one another while working in the meatpacking district as sex workers. Now, when director Kristen Lovell moved to New York City in the 1990s and began to transition, she was fired from her job. With so few options to earn money to survive, Kristen, like many transgender women of color during this era, began sex work in an area known as the Stroll in the meatpacking district of Lower Manhattan. And that's where trans women congregated and forged a deep camaraderie to protect each other from harassment and violence. For this documentary, Lovell reunited with some of her sisters to tell this essential New York story from their firsthand experiences. Kristen's intimate narration and interviews bring an astonishing array of archival material of bygone New York from the 1970s through the early 2000s. As much as The Stroll is a film about transgender life, it is also a startling account of gentrification as New York City Mayor Giuliani enacted quality of life initiatives, quote unquote, that ramped up policing in the city and pushed sex workers to the margins and the fringes of New York City. The Stroll premiered at Sundance 2023 and acts as Kristen Lovell's directorial debut. The film dropped on HBO Max, now titled Max, on June 21st and is available for streaming. I definitely encourage everybody to check it out. Um, It's a story that's close to me as well because I remember what the meatpacking district was like and all the culture and and the community that was down there has now been erased. So listen to what these folks have to say on this podcast and I hope everybody learns a little something that'll encourage them to take a look at this documentary. If you like what you hear on the podcast, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast on Apple and Spotify. And with that said, let's get into it. And then I got off on 14th Street, you could hear the clickety-clack of the hills. The life, the light, the shadows. We called 14th Street the straw, and that was our turf. Hello and welcome uh, to the Scene to Scene podcast, The Deadline. Thank you both for, for coming onto the Scene to Scene podcast, um, Zachary and Carrie. Thank you so much. Um, I have so many questions. The documentary is really good, and it actually reminds me of my childhood. I grew up here in New York. And when I was in my sort of coming out era, you know, we would hang out in the meatpacking district or the pier at Christopher Street and just in different areas. And, you know, even as a teenager, I knew what was going on down there and the type of people that uh, were there working and doing what they had to do. I'm just wondering, what is it about the meatpacking district and that sort of 
this sort of era now versus back then that made you want to sort of chronicle this particular story? I went out on 14th Street when I was like 15 years old, but mm-hmm. 14th Street has been around since like the 80s. Mm-hmm. It's been around a long time. But um, the way I felt when I stumbled across 14th Street, I, I don't know what to say, but it, it felt like a majestic place. Mm-hmm. And it's like seeing the girls out there, they're they're all groomed. They're all beautiful. Like, it's like a little secret hideaway when you come from Christopher and you go down to 14th Street. Mm-hmm. Like, for me, it was like, it started out magical to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm so grateful to Zachary, HBO, and Christian mm-hmm. that they took on this project because, um, just to go a little back, I, I had did six years in prison, but when I got out of um, prison, like anytime I, I went to jail for a long periods of time, I would always come out and go back to 14th Street. And mm-hmm. when I got out the last time and I went to 14th Street, there was nobody out there. This was mm-hmm. in 2015. Yeah. And I asked somebody, I said, what happened to all the girls that used to be out here? And it was like, um, they cleaned up the whole neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was really hurt by this. I was saddened, mm-hmm. you know, I was blaming in my head. I was blaming people. I was like, why did the girls make them take 14th street away? Mm-hmm. You know, but 14th street, man, it to me was a special place. It's a, it was a place where we all congregated. Mm-hmm. Like that was just for us, like mm-hmm. the trans men that wanted to be around each other laugh with each other hang out after being on the stroll so Mm -hmm. it was it was like a sisterhood and how did you deal with that erasure because if you go over there now like there's nothing over there now it's all residential even the clubs that I used to go to over there they don't exist it's just a bunch of like homes and stuff like that so what happened at 14th street was a part of the gentrification that's been happening in New York. So I'm wondering how you dealt with that sort of erasure and that trauma. Um, you know, I, I don't deal well with it because there, there have been times I walk through there, uh, pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. And, um, when, when I, when I go through there, I feel like a sense of hurt and pain like, especially because my girlfriends that I lost, we were very close. Mm-hmm. You know, I lost a lot of girlfriends out there and it just, it hurts. And just to walk through there, just, it's a trigger, you know? Mm-hmm. And I see all these people walking their big, expensive dogs and living in their big, expensive apartment. And I'm like, they, sometimes I can't believe, like, they really got us out of here. And it hurts. It hurts a lot. So is there a place where people can go now or have, has everyone been mainly displaced? Actually, um, from what I've been seeing, when I do go to the village a lot, Mm -hmm. People still they they have young trans women now mm-hmm. that that 
some most of them they know the history because they hang out with older trans women mm-hmm. that tell them and they go out there but it's not like trying to make money and I'm not quite sure what they do when they're out there but it's like it's not the same mm. and it's like we had 14th street the 90s babies we had 14th street when it was at its best when it was so much money out there mm-hmm. so now with the gentrification um that's no longer there you know mm-hmm. but i've seen i've walked through there and i've seen young girls out there and i just don't know what they're doing but mm. yeah but nobody they what what we witnessed what we went through was a, spe- a special era buzz and um these new girls they will never know Mm-hmm. what we all went through to get what we are today. Mm-hmm. And for, for Zachary and, and Kristen, thank you for, for joining us. I'm, I'm wondering how did you go about researching for the documentary and understanding what pieces you needed to tell the story you wanted to tell? I think like, well, because I lived a lot of it and experienced mm-hmm. a lot of the effects of the Giuliani and the Bloomberg policing era, um, experiencing and witnessing the events of 9-11. Right. Um, the advocacy and the activism in the early days of when I when I started coming around as a young person, you know, so it was, you know, it was things that were already in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, what, what the harder part was to find the things to follow up and, and, co- and what's the word I'm looking corroborate mm-hmm. the story. And it was hard. It was really hard to find that stuff. And we had our amazing archival producer, Olivia, you know, we would we would go down different rabbit holes and, and uncover, you know, certain aspects of the story. And like the police, for instance, and how, you know, that the drag queens in the 70s were behind the trucks. Right. And to understand that, like, you know, it's been 50 something years since Stonewall, but for 50 something years after Stonewall, they still fucked with the queens. Right. You know? And Eaton, here we are to this day where they're trying to repeal and take away trans rights. You know, it's the same old story in a different era. Absolutely. And, you know, the material, it was a very well represented time and place because there were so many artists and photographers in the area. And because trans women, sex working were so known Mm -hmm. by New Yorkers. I mean, every New Yorker I talked to about this project has their own story mm-hmm. about walking through the meatpacking district and having interactions with the trans women who were there. So this is a much overdue telling of, of this story that's so integral to New York's history. It's also, you know, the history of white supremacy and, and right. late capitalism. And it's mm-hmm. also the history of America in many ways. I mean, this is a microcosm of um, something that happens all over the country. And with doing that, that research and everything and bringing back feelings, like what kind of feelings came up for you, Carrie, uh, in terms of, and you, you know, you talked about the triggers or whatever, but do you ever wonder what things would be like if it hadn't because they call it cleaning up you know but 
I believe, you know, in that area, people didn't see sex work with shame. It was a job, you know. So how did you work through that? The feelings, the shame, everything. Listen, um, when I did sex work, like anything in my life, I took it seriously. And, you know, once the first time I started working out there, like I was making so much money. Mm -hmm. So I was addicted to the money Mm -hmm. and, you know, so many rich white men and other rich people, whatever race was picking me up and, you know, I was addicted to the money. So it wasn't really any shame, but we did go through a lot being out there, putting ourselves out there. I did experience a lot of violence, mm-hmm. you know, there were bad times, like uh, connected to the good times. Mm-hmm. So I went through a lot out there, but there wasn't really any shame there for me. And, you know, talking with different folks who are within the documentary, how did Zachary and Kristen, how did you go about finding other folks to talk to? Or did you know people who you could reach out to? to sort of join in and be a part of the documentary? I started with my core group of people, people that were a part of my life in the times when I first started coming out Mm -hmm. and then took it to others. Like I wanted to make sure that I kind of had a representation of the different cliques and groups that were out there, you know, that, that, that made up the sisterhood, you know, that we were all connected in this way. You know, we were aware of each other. Like I had my little crew, Katrina and Nicole had their little crew, you know, Harry and, and them, you know, had their crews and stuff. And it, we were all aware of each other when we would run, like walk past each other in the streets. We would be saying hello or, you know, give each other a kiss and mm-hmm. or what's going on with the weather or the cops or what's, what's the dates giving. So it was, you know that it was like that that part of how we take care of one another and look out for one another when we're in the prison industrial complex system right you know there's that whole story of how we acquired you know special housing to protect trans and gender non-conforming people in the prison system you know so these are things that are built off of like our community the things that we had to fight for we had to fight for our health care we had to fight for you know basic human and civil rights every day Mm -hmm. when we get off that stroll and we're hitting the subway going back to our boroughs or whatever the case may be we have to face the public every day with that children going to school people going to work you know what i mean like and that and that wasn't easy that wasn't easy there were they were like i mentioned in the documentary there were times where we needed each each other's support like i'm like girl girl, did, do you live on 125th? Can we take the train together? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we used right. to stick together in that kind of way. Couch surfing, trying to find places to sleep together or looking out for one another in those aspects. We're in jail together. We're not in special housing unit. We're in general population and we're the two queens in the house. We got to look out because the boys might beat us, you know? Right. So it's a lot. Yeah. And with dealing with something so personal and something so close to the chest, when doing this documentary, how did you protect yourself so that you were able to either, you know, participate with earnestness or, you know, continue the narrative? Because I know sometimes, you know, people can be so deeply a part of what's happening in front of them that it's hard to pull back. So just wondering you guys' thoughts on that. 
I think it's still a challenge for me. It's something that I'm grappling with now. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, there's this and you know, life has perceived to have changed, but yet still things are still remain the same. Right. right? And so I still have to go back into community and deal with community problems and issues. You know what I mean? And, and have these conversations and hold myself to particular accountabilities, you know? And so it is hard navigating and juggling it. Some people perceive that I may have changed or I'm acting different because of the success of the film, you know? And my intention was never any of that. I didn't, you know, as much as I appreciate and love all the accolades and the adoration for the film, that was never my my pure intention. My pure intention was that the story be told as authentically as possible right. for, as a reminder for people to understand, especially now when trans rights are under attack. And for those that don't have a sense of history to know that these things have been going on for a very long time and that there's hope and that there's ways that we can change the system if we stand together, because not too long ago, you know, and before the advent of the internet, it was like the Tower of Babel. We weren't connected as 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 immobilized as we are now as a, a right. community, you know. And so, there are those 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 things. You know, um, I feel like everything in life is like recycled. Mm-hmm. And just like I was, I was explaining earlier, like when I go to the pairs now, like I remember I used to sleep on the pair mm-hmm. when I got kicked out of my house for mm-hmm. being trans. But it's like I, I see the same thing happening. It's just a different situation. Mm-hmm. As you said, like now the streets are clean. So it's like, but it's still the same thing happening that when I was there. Mm-hmm. But yeah. But I just, I don't know. I I just, like I said, every day um, I carry 14th Street in my heart. Like Mm -hmm. I hold on tight to the memories because that's all I have left. Mm -hmm. Because when I go out there, like I don't recognize anything. You know, sometimes it's just scary and just just confusing because I'm like, they just... I feel like they just erased us mm-hmm. and you know, it hurts. It does hurt. Thank you so much, Carrie, for, for, for coming on and being honest no and giving your story. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, Carrie. See you soon, darling. Carrie. See you soon. So I know the, um, the documentary sort of goes over that erasure. And I guess the question is, how did you go about addressing it like within the story that you were creating saying okay this is something we particularly need to address with this and you know thankfully the archive was really speaking to us so we were able to create a composite picture of what Mm -hmm. the neighborhood was like and for it to be a kind of robust world um animation was a part of that as well and creating a kind of language around Mm -hmm. that and uh gems just continued to present themselves from obscurity Mm -hmm. from the past and sylvia rivera i think speaking to us through these um remnants these these you know clips uh felt like signs from the Mm -hmm. spirit realm and 
that's so incredible for them to be so active in the mm-hmm. storytelling for for Marsha and Sylvia, who are revered and always mentioned within the scope of trans history. Mm-hmm. But the reality of their lives as um, homeless folks and sex workers is, you know, not at the forefront of that. So situating them in a story in a, in a larger community um, allows us to see them differently too, more fully. My last question is, what do you hope people, when they watch this, what do you hope they take away from the experience of watching the stroll? A sense of history. I remember I was in Missouri, in the middle of Missouri, and this little trans guy came up to me and thanked me for making the film. I think young people, especially those who don't even know what happened during 9-11, are hungry for history, mm-hmm. like real American history, not just what's in the school books, but like things that have happened that, you know, yeah. that they're unaware of. They're looking for this stuff now. So when they thanked me, because they didn't know X, Y, and Z, they didn't know about Sylvia Rivera or Marsha B. Johnson. You know, when I worked at Sylvia's place, it was like we had young people come in from all parts of the country, some even some places in the world, mm-hmm. right? And why is this place called Sylvia's place? And I didn't know. Every group, every turnover after 90 days or whatever they moved on, I would have to sit them down and give them the rundown about that history. Sylvia's place existed. It's the grandmother of homeless young people shelters in this country. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so they needed to be aware of what what was done to get to the point just to open a small space in a church basement with some cops, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, you know, it, but even so it took Sylvia from the seventies to the early two thousands, just to have the ability to make sure that there were safe spaces for homeless young people who were kicked out of their homes and thrown onto the streets. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how we talk about all oh, protecting, protect the kids. Not too long ago, you weren't protecting the kids. Right. So I don't know. I don't even know what to say at this point now, you know, but that is what it was made for, that they have an idea or an understanding about the history and what it took to get the little bit of rights that we have today. Mm-hmm. I hope that... Uh, people have greater empathy for trans life and for black trans life and storytelling is the greatest tool Mm -hmm. for um, building empathy in the world and this is a big story for everyone I mean this is a paradigm changing story and with this documentary and Kokomo City, it's really to have it's really good to have these histories on record, especially with all the rights and 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 just the livelihood of trans folks sort of being restricted day by day. These stories are are important. And um I just want to say thank you both for getting together and and putting this to screen. Cause I, even I learned a, a lot of different things and I'm from here. So thank you. 
And uh, thank you both for for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you coming in and being honest about the experience. And I look forward to having more conversations with people about the stroll. Thank you so much, Mallory. Thank you, guys. It's a gift to be here with you today. Appreciate it. Thank you. 